start our new series, Promised Hope and Help for All Things Broken. And that is the truth, by the way. I'm hoping that you will assure some people in your family, in your life, your neighborhood, your workplace that have made lots of broken things in their life, that you know where to find hope and help. And uh, I want to tell you how this sermon series came to me because it's, it's a great story and it's fun. And especially today it's fun for me because none of my family's here so I can pick on all of them at the same time. And uh, Josh has not been feeling this to me. I know he had some dental work this week that was really traumatic for him, seven hours in chair. And, and uh, so he's had a rough week and Annette's home with him. And then Caleb's leaving town so he's got all kinds of preps to do that on us for a business trip. So we're, we're here uh, with, I'm here finally without my family, so I can talk about them, which is cool. Um, but when I moved here, my kids were uh, in junior high and, and just starting high school, just, just before high school. But when they were little, this is what they looked like. So uh, absolutely adorable at that time. They've changed now, but now they're, they were adorable. And uh, we called them our little stair steps because we had them 16 and 19 months apart. And uh, they stayed real close. They've always been real close family and close to each other and goof off with each other. I was going through pictures trying to find some pictures that I needed for this storyline. Don't get ahead of me, but uh, I wanted to uh, wanted to show you some pictures of them when they were little because um, when when they were little, we, we lived in a tiny little house in East Lake that was about 800 square feet, two uh, bedrooms and a hallway between hallway and bathroom between them. And uh, and a living room and a dining room is all we had. Um, and it was we kind of were all on top of each other all the time. I had to build triple bunk beds. You'll see the corner of that homemade bunk bed in a few minutes. Um, but my kids, uh, when they were little, we were just always together. And one of the things they loved to do. Oh, I got one more picture. I forgot about the bunny picture. This is awesome. This is just show you how cool they are. Mary, Mary was uh, one of her first ballet pictures. Was she was a bunny. And. Uh, in a ballet thing, and she had to do the hop, hop, hop thing, which was awesome. We had video of all that. My favorite part about this picture in memory is that my son, Caleb, is holding a uh, wooden pistol. I think he's going to shoot the bunny. And uh, <laughs> it's one of those kind of put the rubber band on and shoot him, and he just fell in love with that thing, and we could never get it out of his hands. So he's sitting there with a great grin on his face, like, hey, I'm going to shoot the bunny when she hops in it. So but, uh, the, the, now you, that's, how, that's, that's my kids when they were little. And how adorable and wonderful they were. And uh, but when we, when they were little, they played with Legos all the time. And one of the things I'll show, I'll tell you when. One of the things that we would do is just bring all the Legos into the living room because that was kind of our really only place to play, and put them in the floor and just build like crazy and uh, like crazy, crazy. You know, we bought the little kits at first where you have, you know, you, you build a little car, you build a little spaceship kind of thing. And we could afford those things. But then my brother, my old brother Lynn, uh, started supplying Legos because he's a Lego maniac. And, uh, but he started supplying Legos to us in buckets, just giant buckets of Legos. Remember those when you buy those? And, uh, and so we, the kids would have these big buckets. We'd bring them in there and just dump them out. And instead of building what was in those, you know, what, what you had instructions for, they became their own engineering creative people and decided they would build their own thing. And they were into spaceships and that kind of thing. So especially Josh and Caleb, for a long time, would build these elaborate spaceships. They'd take some sort of base and start building a spaceship. But being, you know, five and six years old, 
They didn't understand geometry. They didn't understand engineering. They didn't understand stress loads and that kind of stuff. And so they'd end up with something built over here, and then they would start building off of it up here, three or four layers high, and then they would go way over here, and pretty soon they're putting a ton of stuff here, and you're going, son, it's going to stress it out, and it's all going to break. And you, know, you try to explain it to them a zillion times a day, and you show them many ways to change that, and you know it's more cool like this, but they're thinking it's more cool like out here, hanging out on the back, and uh, you know they're picturing the Enterprise with all that stuff hanging off the back, so they're trying to do all that, and, and, and you're going, come on, you know? But I remember... You know, one of the challenges was when it was bedtime, we had to clean everything else, clean all the Legos up, put them in the buckets, and take them back. We don't leave the Legos in the living room. They go back to your room. And uh, so that became a kind of a ritual and routine for a number of years. It seemed like forever. But for a long time, that was our routine. And uh, one of those particular times, Mary had gotten involved in the Lego building contest with the kids and was sitting there building her little thing. And we had this, I had this rule because they tend to build fragile things. Look, when you take it, if you want to take it back to your room so you can keep building on it tomorrow, that was their thing was eventually they learned, hey, I don't have to tear this apart. I can just put it in my room and tomorrow I can build more. And uh, so once I decided that, well, they would break it. When they would lift it to move it, it would break. When they would carry it in their room, it would break. And after a while, the dad would go, we're not getting to bed. It takes another half hour to rebuild that thing. <laughs> you know, and you, it's not even, ugh. And so it, was, it got to be a challenge for me as a, Dad tried to put all the kids to bed on time and get them all in their triple bunk beds and all that. So, um, but they would take them all into their room. That was the thing was you can take your project into your room, bring it back out tomorrow, we'll build on some more. And Mary had built something that night and uh, very fragile, apparently. And so she had, and there's a picture of their, their room, by the way, it's this old house we used to live in. There's a bunk bed I was working. I just started building on this triple bunk bed for them. And, uh, but you can see this corner where they had to carry all their stuff and Way up in the corners, all this Lego world they built, these big Lego-ishy things that they love. And they all got to put their things in their own little places, right in their own little there's a Lincoln Lobby and all that stuff, and pretty cool toys that the kids had. I love playing with my kids on the floor like that. Highly recommend as parents that you know you take the smart things away from them and get down to the nitty-gritty of that. It's way better uh, with children to interact with them and those kind of things and have a, a floor time with them and. A, you can have discussions with them, all kinds of stuff that can't happen when they're playing a game on a thing or whatever. So just highly recommend you get as much of that time in as you can. But, but here's the thing. One night, Mary was, I was, you know, kind of fussing at him, get him to get to bed. We're running late. we got to get in bed. And uh, I'll say prayers with you. I said, look, everybody tear your thing back in there. And I, if it breaks, I don't care. Your dad's not going to fix it. Not going to fix it. We're going to bed. We're going to bed. We're going to bed. And I had fussed at him. Mary rounded the corner into her room. Apparently, whatever she had built broke into a zillion little pieces. And she's in there crying, and I'm in the living room hearing all that going, I'm going to strangle these kids. And I'm ready to go in there and have this, you know, I don't care if it broke. It's, it's you know, we can fix it all tomorrow. It, you know, it's just Legos, by the way. It's not the end of the world. doesn't matter. And I'm having this, I'm really about to just get after them. And I rounded this corner to see my son Caleb okay, with his arm over his sister who's crying. He's the mercy show in our family. So, the middle son. He's got his arm over his sister's shoulder. He's holding all these broken pieces. She's holding a bunch of them. And here's what he says. And I'll never forget as long as I live. He said, let's take it to Dad. He's the greatest fixer I know. He'll fix it for you. And you think I came around that corner... Ready to crush that little girl's heart and say, good man. 
No, no, no. The greatest fixer of the tale of Moses. My son believed in me. He had faith in me. And he wanted me to come in there and prove to his little sister that I'm the greatest fixer. So do you think for a second I was going to go, y'all get in bed? No, no, no. Let's sit down and put that back again. Baby, how's that assembled? How, you want this over here? And we rebuilt her little whatever thing it was. Because the son believed the father was the greatest fixer. That's where this series comes from, by the way, is me remembering that story. And it's amazing how often, as a child of God, I forget, I forget who the greatest fixer is. Just a few years later, um, it was a rare, rare Sunday afternoon in Birmingham for me that the house we lived in was way across town from the church. East Lake to Hoover was forever uh, by interstate. Had to go through Malfunction Junction and all that fun stuff. And, uh, so I rarely went home on Sundays, but it was one of those Sunday after Sunday day, Sundays, Sundays where we had no meetings at church throughout the afternoon. I didn't have to be back early. I didn't have anything to do in the evening service at the church we served. All I had to do was show up and sit in a pew. Um, and so bring the family and all that was real easy. And so I was like, you know what? We're, I'm going home today. Woo-hoo. So we went home after church. At lunch, I had lunch with my family at the house, which was awesome. And, uh, and then I realized, hey, I could actually take a nap today. I was exhausted. I could just take a nap. And the boys wanted to go outside and play baseball. They just got a new baseball bat, like the real one we played with the fat bat and the, you know, not break anything ball for a long time. And they just got some new equipment, and uh, they're ready to go outside and pitch ball. And it's a beautiful Sunday, and, and I'm saying, Dad's going to take a nap. Take a nap. You know, don't take that ball out. Don't play ball outside. And Dad's going to take a nap. Well, when I lay down to take my nap, probably about three minutes into my nap, they convinced Mom that it was okay to go outside and play baseball. And what I told them was, if you play baseball in the front yard without Dad, you're going to break the window. We had this huge plate glass window in the front of the house, and then the side were two little small ones. And... I couldn't have had my head on that pillow more than five minutes when I hear the crash and the screaming child and the screaming mother <laughs> who can't figure out what just happened because she was sitting on the couch but it was under the window that got shattered. You know, I come running in there and my son, Josh, you know, who knows he's done huge wrong. I mean, he's just broken all kinds of my rules and he's made a mess of things and he broke a, he fortunately broke the little paint, not the big one. And, uh, but he comes running in the house, you know, bat in hand, you know, 1,000% guilty. He runs right up into my arms, crying his eyes out. And you know, just say, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. You know, and I'm consoling him. I'm also frustrated. I can't take a nap now because we got things to clean up. And i got to go to the store and buy a piece of glass and put some cardboard up in the meantime, all that kind of stuff. But I remember consoling him and helping him. And the only thing that would get him to calm down was when I finally told him, Josh, I can fix this. It's just a piece of glass. We go to the store, we buy one just like it, they cut it the right side, and it glues in, you put the wood back in, it'll go, it'll be fine. Dad knows how to fix this. And he just calmed way down after that. He's like, okay. So, you know, he had a pretty traumatic afternoon. He, I made him help clean up all the glass, of course, and put the baseball in my closet, <laughs> kind of thing. And uh, But it was interesting, because driving to church that night, we were just driving along, singing songs on the radio like we always did with our tapes and stuff. And Josh said, Dad, you know what? He said, it's great to have a dad that can fix anything I break. Man, of course, of course it is, son. Yes. <laughs> you know? There's one of those moments where you just go, yes. But 
both of my kids in a period of a couple of years had acknowledged that this truth, and you know, the Bible says we learn from children. We learn from children. We learn spiritual things from children. And what I learned from my kids is we have a Heavenly Father who can fix anything we break. We just have to learn to go to Him. That's what this series is built on. And I really want you to bring some people in the next couple of weeks. We're going to be talking about the promises that were sent way ahead of time where God said, I'm going to fix everything that's broken. There's lots of promises. That's next week. And then the third week of this series, you're going to hear uh, stories of God fixing things. You're going to hear some actual stories. They're really cool to help you see the beauty and grace. Today, we're going to give you, I'm going to give you a picture of brokenness because... All of us have had big problems and issues that you couldn't fix by yourself. You've had the kind of problems that when you needed help, you got to find somebody. It's like, I don't know. I don't know what to do. We were working on some computer stuff this week at the house, and I was like, I, I have no idea what that means, how to do any of that. I'm not sure what that is. I was working on some tax forms uh, a few months ago, and I'm, I'm reading that thing, and my mind's about to explode trying to understand what that little sentence means. Like, how can somebody write something that complicated in one sentence. It's ridiculous. I don't even know what they're talking about. And you get on the phone and you try to find some help. And find some people that can help you through the tax weirdness of, of our world. But a lot of things need, you need help with. Especially when you understand how broken we really are. And you got to learn to go to the one who can help the broken. So today you're going to get some pictures of brokenness. We're going to start with Adam and Eve. Because honestly, and when we get to heaven you can explain this to them. I will. You broke everything. Adam and Eve broke everything that was breakable. Um, they broke it from the very beginning. Genesis chapter 3 verse 1 says it this way. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, that's verse 6, uh, the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took and ate from it. Well, that's because this serpent, craftier than any uh, beast of the field, this serpent had tempted her and confused her with rhetoric that she didn't understand. She got deceived, according to the New Testament. She was deceived. And so she saw that it was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, that the tree was desirable to make one wise. Now, I just want to pause right there. Okay, so the tree was good for food, delight to the eyes, and desirable to make one wise. I'm going to ask you a question about the Garden of Eden. Okay, you guys are... Practically Bible scholars, because you go to Northside Bible Church, practically Bible scholars. So here's the question. Do you think the garden lacked any food at all? Do you think there was a shortage of food in the garden? Do you think there was a thing, a problem in the garden that nothing was delightful to look at? That the garden was kind of boring and dull and unattractive, kind of all blues and grays and oh. You think the garden was that way? <laughs> Do you think that there was something in the garden that, that said, hey... We're just all going to be stupid the rest of our lives. There's no, there's no smarts here at all. There's no, I'm not wise. Do you think the garden had any influence of stupidity on it? No. In fact, if you go to Genesis 2.17, I think it's the next verse on the, the handout. If you go there, 2.16 and 17, the Lord commanded the man saying, From any tree of the garden you can freely eat. All of the food here is available. I just put this one here to, to make sure your obedience is to me, not to you. There's one tree that's going to test your obedience. All of the other food is for you, for free. You can freely eat, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you'll surely die. And literally everything that you touch after that, as 
Man and woman are going to die. And you know what Adam and Eve did? They took of the tree and they ate. Eve was tempted to do it. Adam just stupidly, stupidly, stupidly did it. I believe when we all get to heaven, we get one free slap. Adam, come on, man. What were you thinking? Because every single person on the planet died after that. All of Adam's children, all of his children, were going to suffer physical death. The planet itself began to deteriorate. Life changed dramatically because Adam and Eve broke everything. And I just want you to hear that in your head. They had everything they needed, everything they wanted, and God provided all things for them. You hear me? Adam and Eve had everything they needed, and God provided all their wants. And they made a choice outside of it. I'm going to say to you, everybody that's in this room today, every single one of us, we have everything we need, and God's going to provide everything we want. He'll take care of us all. Everything. You don't have to go outside of God to get something. You don't have to. When you choose to, you break everything. You break, you sin against God, and it breaks everything. So they had to choose to disobey God, and when they did, just real simple, they broke mankind. <laughs> they broke mankind. Because every child born to Adam and Eve after that would bear a sin nature. And that sin nature washed into all mankind. So not just Adam and Eve. Here's a picture of brokenness, Adam and Eve. And by the way, as soon as the, as soon as the sin had occurred, the brokenness became real obvious in how stupid they were. Remember, they're hiding in a tree. They're hiding in a bush. They're dressed like a bush, hiding in a bush. In a bush that God made, in a garden that God made, on a planet that God made, in a universe that God made. And they're hiding from him like he doesn't know that. And then when God confronts them, Adam literally throws Eve under the bus and blames her and God. You know, the woman, you gave me, she made me, she gave it to me. It's her fault. You know, he never made her. That's stupid, by the way. Because God gives us all good things. She was a good gift. And Adam is shaming and guilting her. Shame on us for doing that. And, and so that all breeds into us in very strong ways. And so not just Adam and Eve, but, but secondly, I want you to know that all of us, are broken. There's not a person on the planet you know, I don't care how perfect you think their life is, how wonderful you think they are, how easy you think they have it, or whatever it is, everybody you know is broken. Romans chapter 3, verse 10 through 12. There is none righteous, no, not one. All of us have sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. Look at what it says, Romans 3. None righteous, no, not one. There's no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They've all together become worthless. So there's no one who does good, not even one. So we're so broken, according to this, that we don't even seek God. We don't even seek God. That's how broken we are. Uh, I taught a few months ago, maybe a year or more ago now, in, on Psalm chapter 2, uh, where it says the nations are raging. Kendall had, had mentioned that Psalm 2 is sort of a summary of the book of Revelation, a great summary of the book of Revelation. It got me intrigued with it, and I remember teaching on it. The nations are raging. They're mocking God. They, uh, and I just want you to consider how everything in our culture, our current culture we live in, everything that's popular in our culture tends to mock God, tends to 
to distract us against God and His laws. The, the, the people of, of Hollywood, we would call them the famous people, the celebrities of our day, right? They, they celebrate guys like Bruce Jenner. I, I refuse to call him the other name, so he's Bruce Jenner. They, they celebrate Bruce Jenner like he's some sort of hero. He is not a hero. He is a broken, sinful, fallen man who has been deceived by the enemy and lured away into, into a, a life of immoral, terrible, terrible track. And here, here we are celebrating, trying to celebrate him. We put him on the covers of magazines and we, we put him on television. And we talk about how, how brave and honorable he is. And none of that's true. He's broken. The nations are raging and they're in huge sin. And, and they're avoiding uh, listening to or learning from God. Uh, the, the movies about God, uh, Bruce Almighty, and the other ones that make, make sort of make fun of God, um, they can have some humorous stuff in them, but at the end of the day, that's Hollywood mocking my God. The one that we sang about, how many kings come down from their throne, that is what Hollywood, that's what our culture tends to do is mock God. We're so broken that we tend to, we, we even make it entertainment now. It's entertaining to, to mock God, to live a lifestyle opposite of that of God. And people are all the time working their way around, plotting. In, in, in Psalm 2 it talks about they're plotting against God, plotting their ways around God, avoiding, ignoring, and hiding from God. Romans 3 says it this way. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It's the nature of all men to avoid and ignore God. It's the nature of everybody in this room to avoid and ignore God. Part of the spiritual discipline you're supposed to have as a Christ follower is to ignore you. Ignore your flesh and listen to God and His Spirit. That's the discipline of the Spirit that we're supposed to have. Otherwise, we look just like natural man. Natural men avoid God and ignore God because they're broken. And by the way, as Christians, we can live exactly like that according to Corinthians we can live lives that are just as broken if we're not careful. So I want you to consider how broken we can be by telling you another story that was familiar, maybe familiar too if you remember some of the things we've studied before. We tend to make life all about us. And we tend to think that we know better. And there's a great example of that in the book of Daniel. Uh, King Nebuchadnezzar. Remember him, Nebuchadnezzar? A great example. I've used this illustration before so I'll kind of rush through it with you. Um, but he, he, he has a dream that nobody can interpret. He's, he's a king, very powerful king on earth, by the way, very powerful. And he has this dream that nobody can interpret. It freaks him out. His, his own soothsayers and magicians, his wise men, you know, can't figure out what this dream means. And somebody knows that Daniel would be able to do this. Daniel's been in captivity for a while, and he's a man of God. And, and so they go get Daniel. King tells him the dream. Daniel explains the dream to him line by line. And just opens it up to reality for him. And here's what King Nebuchadnezzar says to Daniel. He says, Daniel 2.47, he says, The king said to Daniel, Truly I know your God is the greatest of all gods, the Lord of all kings. That's a pretty, pretty neat statement to make, by the way. I know your God is the God of all gods, the Lord of all kings. He's the greatest that's Daniel chapter 2 at the end. In Daniel chapter 3, King Nebuchadnezzar, 
I call him King Chad. That's in the middle of his name. King Chad makes an idol to his personal glory, to himself. Your God's the God of all gods, the King of all kings. Oh, hey, let me build a giant statue in the middle of town so everybody worships me. How smart is that? That's just pure sinfulness, by the way. It's run amok. It's brokenness of mankind really big. So he builds this giant statue, makes an idol to himself, and he gets everybody worshiping him. Now, you know the story from that is everybody's supposed to bow down when they play all these instruments. They have this long list of instruments they play. They play these instruments. Everybody's supposed to bow down and worship King Chad. Well, there's a couple of guys that choose not to do that. And uh, three of them in particular are, anybody remember their names? Careful. Come on. Try. You're trying. Come on. You can do this. Hananiah, Azariah, Mishael. Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael. Some of you may call them by their Babylonian name. Shame on you. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. When you get to heaven, I would not choose to do that by you. Because if slapping is allowed in heaven, you're going to get one. So, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, they will not bow down to God, to, to this foreign God. And they say, hey, it's okay. If you're going to throw us in the furnace, throw us in the furnace. If we die, we die. You know, we... Whether God delivers us or not, we're still going to worship only the one true God. It's an awesome story. They throw them in there, and you know the whole deal. There's, they look in, and all the people that throw them in there are burned up and so hot. And they look in there, and there's you know not three men in the fire, but there's four. You know, the angel of the Lord appears in there. We believe Christ himself was there with them in the fire. They're delivered out of the fire. When they go get them out of the fire, they don't even smell like smoke. Freaky, freaky weird, by the way. Man, that whole story just weirds me out like crazy. And here are these guys that would not bend and bow. And King Chad, who had said in chapter 2, your God is the God of all gods. He's the greatest king ever. He's the Lord of lords. Oh, let me build a statue to myself. Oh, these guys won't bow to my statue. I'm going to throw them in the furnace. Oh, they're not burned up. Huge miracle happens right in front of his eyes. Over his arrogance. The miracle's all about his arrogance. And so it freaks out the king again. And here's what he says. Praise the God, Daniel 3, 28. Praise the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He's King Chad. He uses wrong words. And, and he says, verse 29, No other God can save his people like this. There's no other God like him. We sang that this morning. There's no other God like him. When we say glory in the highest on the bridge. There is none like you, no other God like you. There's no other God like him. So Nebuchadnezzar, you know who I think is practically bipolar by the time you get to the end of this story, spiritually bipolar. Nebuchadnezzar is going, there's no God like you. Chapter 3, verse 29, no God like you. Chapter 4, 12 months later, he's taking a walk on the roof of his royal palace in Babylon. As he looks out across the city, here's what he says. Wow, God, you're a great God. There's no God like you. No, that's not what he says. Look at this great city of Babylon. By my own mighty power, I have built this beautiful city as my royal residence to display my majestic splendor. How broken are we? We tend to want to make everything about us. And Nebuchadnezzar's the shining example of it being all about me. He has these words that he says. I want you to get this. He has these words that he says kind of spotted all throughout this. You're the king of kings. You're the greatest ever. There's no God like you. But his lifestyle is, hey, it's all about me. I want what I want. And I can do what I want to do. And 
it's all about me. And I know better than anybody else, especially you, God. So I'm going to build a thing to myself. I'm going to brag about all that I've accomplished. I'm not giving you any glory or any credit. I just want to say it's a dangerous place. And I know Christians that struggle with exactly what this pagan king is struggling with. They have words without resolve. And they make statements that they don't follow through with their lifestyle. They don't even try to follow through with them. We're so broken we can't focus on God even when he's revealing himself in the very place we're in. He was revealing himself over and over to King Nebuchadnezzar going, come on man, get clue, get clue, get clue. I'm the greatest king. Build, a, build an image to me. You know, build a temple to me. Give Israel a chance to show you who I am. I'm showing you myself and all these miracles and all this stuff that's happening. No, you've got to keep building to yourself. He's broken. He's broken. That's how broken we are. We're so broken we can't focus on God even when he's revealing himself to us. Well, what about somebody that's really righteous? Let's, let's take Job for a minute. I like Job a lot, by the way. The book of Job's awesome. And I'm just going to give you a quick note about Job. You can just load this one up if you want to. In Job chapter 1, he has a broken heart because his family, children, and grandchildren are all killed in that tragic storm. Remember, Satan goes to God and goes, hey, um, you know, I'm going to find somebody that I can break. And God goes, wait, well, consider Job. I hate that verse, by the way. God points to Job for Satan, and, and he says, well, Job's very wealthy. He's got a great family. He's got a whole great life. If I take all that away from him, you know, he won't have all that. And God goes, good luck with that. I know Job. I know Job. He's going to worship me at the end, and he does, by the way. But in the middle of it all, you get these three verses. He has this broken heart. From It actually says at the end of chapter 1, he's broken down so much, he shaves his head and rents his clothes. But he also says he fell down in his brokenness and he worshipped God. That's why he's a righteous man, because even when he's broken hearted, he can worship God. In chapter 7, his skin is riddled with disease. Actually says it's broken skin and he's, he's scraping himself with pottery. He's having a terrible, terrible terrible problem physically and he's broken physically in, verse, in chapter 17 here's what he says my spirit is broken my days are cut short the grave awaits me he's, he's broken spirited now right? I just want you to know this he's a righteous man that's been through a lot and, and his spirit gets broken but he never stops dialoguing with his God it's very important because when you read the whole book Chapter 42 is my favorite part of the book. Chapter after God spends three chapters really telling Job, I want to have a talk with you, Job. And, and I'm just going to give you the Stan Gibbs translation. Job 38, I think. Chapter 38, verse 1 and 2. He says, the King James says, Gird up your loins and we're going to talk. It's like put on your big boy pants is what it is. Pull up your big boy pants. We're going to have to talk. That's what he does. And God, God explains to Job who he is. This is who I am, Job. I can do all these things. I can make it lightning. You know, I decide when when the storms hit in the mountains and they don't. I decide where the where the snow stops. I decide where the ocean starts and stops and the land starts. I decide those things, Job. And, and he actually says that part of that dialogue with Job, he goes, I don't remember you being there when I did all that. I just didn't see you there. You know? He goes, I, I decide what the cosmos looks like. I decide how, when, when animals will reproduce. I decide all of that. I got all of this. You know, and Job eventually just quiet. He goes, I'm, I'm not talking about that. And he goes, no, Job, I really want you to answer me. I want to talk to you one more time. 
chapter 41. I'm going to talk to you one more time, and when I'm done, I want you to answer me. So Job's answer is in chapter 42, the first part of chapter 42, and he says, he goes, and he, he literally goes into an understanding. He goes, who am I to darken, question, the counsel of God? The things that have happened to me, the things that have happened to me are too wonderful for me to understand. And he's saying to God, I'm still worshiping you. You're a God of wonder. You're a God of, of, of majesty and glory and beauty. Even though I've lost all of this and my heart's broken, my body's riddled in pain. My spirit is broken. You're still my God. Now that, by the way, is what it's supposed to look like when we're broken and things get broken and we turn back to God. Job, Job had it right when he did that. Look at Hosea, or listen to Hosea chapter 6, verse 7. It's, I think I printed it in your notes for you. Like Adam, God talking about all of mankind. Like Adam, they have broken the covenant. They were unfaithful to be there. So there's this unfaithfulness that we have towards God in general. All of mankind has been very unfaithful to the one who loves us more than life itself. And I just want you to hear today, there is hope for all that. You can ask the question, is there any hope or help for any of that? Psalm 51 talks about a good break. <laughs> good break. Psalm 51 verse 17. Here's what it says. The sacrifices of God, think about Job, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise that. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and contrite heart. Hosea chapter 6 verse 1 has this great, great, great Come, let us return to the Lord. He has torn us to pieces, by the way, in judgment and sin. But He will heal us. So, part number one of our broken series is for everybody to understand, we have all been broken very badly. We fall underneath the sin nature of Adam. And unless anybody here was born without help from a man, like Jesus was born in a manger, Without help from a man, Mary gave birth without mankind being involved. So Jesus was sinless. The rest of us are sinful. We all have a sin nature. We've all been broken. And we live in a broken and fallen world. But it's not a hopeless world because there is hope. He says, return to me. And I'll heal all this. I'll fix all of this. And when we return to Christ, most of you, everybody I know here today, have returned to Him. You've gone to Him, repented of your sins, and you've gone to Him, and you've seen Him do a restoring, renewing work in your life, so you're not living under the, the power of sin and the presence of sin. That's why we sang in Christ alone this morning. So let me give you a couple of carryouts, and then we're going to do something a little different as we sing our closing song this morning. Let me give you a couple of carryouts. Three things I'd like you to take home with you. I'd like you to take home your, uh, your food from the restaurant and you don't finish it all. I'd love for you just to spend some time this week in a journal writing down. I really believe you should write it. I've gotten to the place where I like to, sometimes I like to journal electronically um, because I can hit delete and send it into the electronic never, never land that only God knew. <laughs> so you can journal in any way you want, but I would recommend that you acknowledge your brokenness.
to God in writing this week. I would highly recommend in writing this week, you tell God, I'm a mess. I'm a mess. I'm broken. I can't help myself. Secondly, I would recommend that you ask God to show you broken people that you can encourage with your story. Because when we acknowledge our brokenness, we become ministers to help people. Ministers have to know they're broken. And then I would encourage you to pray for the people who God shows you. And just to talk to them. Find a way to build a bridge and talk to them. So acknowledge your brokenness and then ask God to show you people in your your world that are broken. We're going we're gonna to pray for broken people in just a few minutes. We're going to pray as a church family. I'd like to be thinking about who you know. Maybe even right now you can think of somebody you know that's really struggling. They're just broken and they're going through brokenness. By the way, some people get in these giant messes and they're very broken and they don't even know it. You can see, you can see the train wreck a mile away. You see all the disaster happening around them and you, you know they don't have a clue. Those people we need to be praying for. And as, as God's people that he's restoring and redeeming and fixing, we need to be able, kind of like Caleb did, we need to be able to put our arm around him and go, let's go to Dad. He's the greatest fixer ever. He is the greatest fixer ever, right? And you know him personally. He's your heavenly father. Caleb knew the guy around the corner that fusses at us about breaking things. He can help us. Let's go to him. You know that you can go to God with anybody and get them help. You just need to be willing to build those conversations. And, and sometimes you got to be courageous with that. you got to really have some courage and be willing to step on some feelings and work past some hard issues and speak, into con speak conflict if, with the conflict in the midst of it all if you need to. Do it with grace and love, all in desire to help. You don't need to ever yell or scream or choke. <laughs> but you really do need to find a way to minister to those people. The same help that you've got is available to all of them. It's available to all of them.